Jerry goes into the doctor's office for his annual checkup and uh, sits down. Doctor comes in. Um, they go. They go through the small talk of hello, how are you? And Jerry basically says, "Okay, Doc, um, what's the what's 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 the deal? What do I what do we de- what are we dealing with here?" Doctor says, "Well, Jerry, first first things first, you have to stop masturbating." What? Well, I have to examine you. I got handguns, I got shotguns, I got a Mohawk friend doing cross-border and back runs. You need a gap man, a new way use one. Sitting here with John Brooks on a very rainy January day. It's about six degrees out. It's been raining for the last 12 hours, and he's been kind enough to come to my place and join me for a little interview. So I wanted to talk to you about your life in music, how you wound up to be where you are right now, and to find out more about who you are. You were born in King City. I guess technically I was born in Richmond Hill, which is now called Vaughn, but uh, everybody who was raised in King City was born in Richmond Hill. King City is where I say I'm from, though. That's a, a small town. It was a small town when I was growing up, uh, north of Canada's Wonderland. It seems to be the landmark mark everybody recognizes. And uh, I grew up during that period where it, be, it, it, it made the transition from being a small town to a bedroom community. Uh, and I lived there until the late 80s. There's a lot of farmland there. Small farms. Yeah, a lot of farms. Uh, and it it's a funny thing, King City. Uh, I didn't realize this growing up there. I only realized it when I left the place and people asked me where I'm from, uh, particularly in places in, around southern Ontario. King City has, I discovered, a reputation for, 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 for a place for rich people to uh, locate. And I guess I knew this somehow in the back of my mind, but I, I, I grew up in the town, in the little, the, the village area, you know, and it was all very working class. And as were most of the kids I went to school with, it, what happened with King, King City survived uh, the, the, the negative aspects uh, the, of, 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 of what we call sprawl for so long because the little town was sort of buffered by golf courses and horse farms um and uh and and no sewers <laughs> i remember <laughs> i remember my dad in the in the 80s was always fretting about when the sewers are coming cuz then the contractors will have their way with this place and sure enough that day did 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 come but not until only i don't know 8 years ago 9 years maybe maybe it's as long as 10 years now i don't know but they did in fact get there and now yeah the place is um completely unrecognizable yeah, that's changed quite a bit. Um, what did your dad do? Uh, he was, uh, what did he do? Well, the the thing most essential to me that he did was that he was a musician. Uh, for about 25 years, he was a professional drummer, uh, though he never did it full time. It was always a weekend thing. He played in uh, country waltz bands and uh, he played around uh, around the area dances Um when those things still happened, um, for money, he, he, he play he, he was, I 
he kicks himself to this day for leaving de Havilland in the 60s. They kept on laying people off, calling them back, laying people off. It was a really turbulent time. He, he like a lot of others, uh, decided to give up on them. Um, I mean, sometimes he, he imagines what, what would life be like had he stayed for another, just stuck it out for a couple of years, you know? Mm. The one thing that, I've, that I can always relate to my dad with is that he was never, I don't think he was ever happily employed. And he was always working for the man. He had a, I remember he had a heart attack when he was fairly young in his early 40s, in the early 80s. And uh, when, he, when, he, when he came back to work after being off for about six months, they just called him into the office and just said, I don't know what the substance of the conversation was, but basically they said uh, candidly and, and without any irony or, or, or trace of, 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 you know, hiding the shame of it. They just said, we can't afford to have you working for us you're not hmm. healthy. Can wow. you imagine that happening today? But that was ever since then he's he's bounced around to being any, you know, self-employed sports writer to uh um uh working for a local newspaper, uh selling advertisement, just dreary stuff that I always felt bad that he had to endure for for our sakes. But musically, I mean, the fact that he played in in mm. a band, did that influence you in any way? Well, it in 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 so far as it it was in my DNA and in my bones and just always around me growing up, um, and and seeing your dad play an instrument, I think the 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 knee jerk reaction is is I'm I got to figure out how to do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is what I did. So I, drums I I learned at a pretty early age, and uh, from there I I am I, he also taught himself piano and I remember teaching myself piano. Was he encouraging to you to, to pursue a musical, maybe not a career, but to pursue music? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> the one, the one time my my dad took uh, made any overt attempt at being involved in my education was when we went. I, I made it to middle school, I guess you'd call it. But it was we went I remember the school was the King City school was kindergarten to grade three then we went grade four and five at another school and then and then we got moved to this school across from the high school where I did grade six grade seven and eight I remember when I hit grade seven the streaming thing was kicking in and and so they I don't know how they magically deemed what students were going to go in the A stream, which were clearly meant to be, go on to univer, you know university applications, right. and the B stream, which was what I've got put in, uh, and then there was the 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 C stream. You never wanted to end up in the C stream. That was like for the people who lived on the wrong side of the tracks in right. Oak, Oak Ridges. Anyway, I remember coming home one day soon after getting into grade seven at this school with a flute. That was just the instrument I was assigned. Right. Anyway, uh, Jack took the morning off work the next day and was in the, in the principal's office and basically saying, um, my son's going to be playing drums in the school band. And I don't care what stream he's in, B, C, D, A, whatever, but he's going to be in the band. And sure enough, I was in, I was in the music. That was the one time he uh, hands-on interest in my uh, education. <laughs> now, do you think... Your interest in music comes directly from your dad, or did it come from someone, something else? Um, it came. It came as much as it might have been, and who knows, who knows what DNA and all that has in store for us. I don't know. That's all voodoo to me. Certainly, some of it came from 
my dad's uh, passion for music. Um, but I, I, I feel like more of it came from my own feeling of being on the outskirts of approval on, in every level in society growing up. Um, and what connected you to that music? <clears throat> like who would you have listened to or what would you have? Well, there's like, I don't know, there's different periods of life where, where your eyes open a little bit more. And if maybe the first time, maybe the first or second time that happens is around that preteen age where you start to develop your own personality. And the, the music that grabbed me then was whatever everyone else was not listening to. <laughs> that was, it was as simple as that. If it's popular, if everybody, if everybody's turning left, I turn right. And, and by that, I mean myself and whatever best friend partner in, in, um, alternative, uh, you know, all things, all things different, you know, right. that's where we would go. So examples, um, let's see. So back then it was like everybody wore jeans or corduroys and everybody either liked the classic rock or what they called disco at the time, which I still don't really know what people meant by that. Right. But, you know, I went down that, 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 you know, I was introduced as everybody my own age in King City was to you know all the the big name bands at the time. You know, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, all that, all that. But then I started to discover ways of um, throwing curveballs to even that crowd, and and um, it wasn't long before I discovered Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, uh, jazz. I had an uncle uh, who who had this great record collection, and every Christmas he'd give me. Uh, a cassette tape of a classic bebop jazz artist right. and I would latch on to that and I it blows me away to think that I had a mind able to even take that in but I was I was game and so I got into a lot of that stuff um, and at this point are you playing yet or I, I was playing I was playing drums I was playing a little bit of piano I was taking piano lessons I always took piano lessons I think I made it even up as far as grade 9 conservatory at one point but uh that's impressive. I guess so. I don't know. I was never particularly impressed with. I, I th there was a period in the in the nineties when I was in a rock band where I was a Hammond organ player where I I, I had developed a, a I guess my own voice on the keyboards. It was pretty iconoclastic way of playing. Very physical. Very violent. Very uh, frenetic and. Um, but before, but before then, you mean while I was doing all this listening to all this yeah, uh, like, other I mean, what, stuff, who were your influences and, and oh, maybe who made did, you play the Hammond the way you, you wound up playing it? I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I, I guess I, I don't, I have a, such a horrible memory for trying to come up with influences like this because it seems impossible. But I mean, I went through a long phase in my early teens of listening to British prog rock. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was like a, uh, myself and 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 my best friend at the time, we were we we would we would as much as we would listen to Neil Young tonight's the night, we would also or or, or ZZ Top even or 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 Frank Zappa, we were also equally enamored with uh, um, what you know Miles Davis's bitches brew period, but also early Genesis mm -hmm. or Jethro Tull or right. or yes you know like they. They, but I, th I think music, I mean, I think back then, we're talking probably 70s and 80s, that 
it was easier to do that. It wasn't all in these little cylinders. Even FM stations would have more variety that they play. Yeah, you know, that reminds me. One one difference is, and I don't think a high school student would relate to this today, but we had the legitimate hope that if we if we applied ourselves, we could learn and absorb every album ever produced. No, we did. We <laughs> yeah. we actually did. I mean, and and you could go to a, you could go to you could. I remember uh, Jonathan. Lip, there's a blast from the past. Jonathan Lipson's incredible records and books. We would take forty dollars down. We would get on. The, we would hitchhike to Oak Ridges. We would get on the Go bus. Then we'd go to Finch, and then we would take the subway down. We'd get out at Young and Bloor. We'd we'd eat as much Harvey's as we could, and then we'd cross the street and spend three hours just losing ourselves in incredible records and books. And then if we didn't get our needs satisfied, then we'd walk down Young Street like Kings and we'd go to the Vinyl Museum, you know, these places. And, and of course, Sam's. Right. Um, um, but we really did feel, it, okay, classical music was didn't exist for us. Like that mm-hmm. was just, I don't know about that. That's not, we're not counting that. Right. You know, make we, you know, kid, we, made up our own rules. Um, but excluding that and a portion of, of traditional jazz, which was a world we hadn't yet understood or been, been introduced to, we really believed. And I think we weren't entirely wrong that, you know, we could, we could learn everything that's been, you know, that was the world. Then you could act, you know, today you go into a high school and you, you pick five random iPods or uh, iPhones and look at the music selection that, three or four or five different 16 year olds have and there's a good chance they'll look nothing alike yeah for sure. and and you won't know anything on there right um so that changed pretty fast but that's how we felt growing up we we just felt like everything and 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 that that gave us that taught us attentiveness but you pursued music for a while as yes as a career yes well i always wanted to be a musician i mean i i i i always wanted i High school, we, we were. I had a band with um, with my best friend Neil Crookshank, uh, who I later got in a band with. In a, you know, in the, when we were young adults, but in high school we played um, music together. I was drums, he was guitar, and um, later he he sort of taught me guitar, a little bit of guitar, just strumming along. And we played. My very first gig was at the Salty Dog Tavern on Highway Twenty Seven, um, just outside Kleinberg, where he lived. And we we were like walking, talking Neil Young songbooks, and we'd go there, sixteen and seventeen years old respectively, and play to adults in this dive bar, and we would we we wouldn't play Heart of Gold. We were playing like what we wanted. To, we were playing songs no one even knew. Um, we just did what we wanted. It was very fun. That was our, my first live experience. And and you followed that thinking, I'm going to be a musician. Oh, yeah. I remember even saying, I remember saying, I'm going to be a musician, whether it's, you know, playing at Maple Leaf Gardens or playing in front of Maple Leaf Gardens on the street. I mean, that was my idealistic ideal. I just, I had the wherewithal. I have to give myself a little bit of credit. I knew that I was good at it. I knew that I, I had a mind for it. I knew that I was inspired by it. And I knew that I could do do. I, I knew that I could I could speak this language. Wow! So you never questioned that. Well, I I did much later, you know. I mean, but then, but at just... the time um, when you know the 
that that seventeen year old mind is 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 enviable in that it's uncluttered with all the uh, all the negativity that adulthood brings. I mean, I and just what did you imagine? I mean, the fact that you would be willing to play either in Maple Leaf Gardens or outside of Maple Leaf Gardens. <laughs> what did you have in mind in terms of what was what was it to be a musician? I guess just play music, right? Like it wasn't about money; it was about playing music. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely wasn't about money. I never had that. I didn't. I wasn't smart enough to understand that you needed money back then. It wasn't. It, it was. It. I. I. I think that's an interesting question. I didn't. That's a really good question. I've never thought of it that way. But I think that therein lay something that answers one of the questions as to how I actually uh, operate today. I didn't look at it. I didn't even look at it so much as being famous. So of course that was part of it back then. Cause what, what, what on a 17 year old doesn't, isn't starry eyed by that idea. But I, I felt like I wanted to make great albums. I wanted to move people and I, I wanted to, I wanted to make an album like Pink Floyd animals. You know, I wanted to make an album that was, that was coherent and, 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 and full of mystery, full of full of in, full of uh, imagination, uh, full of rebellion. Um, and are you writing at this point? Um, yeah, yeah, I started to very. Um, yeah, it was Neil and I. We were we had a healthy competition together. It was, I mean, it was something I imagine every great writing uh, duo or or band that has two lead songwriters right. go through. I know that profoundly with Neil. We we were in competition with each other, so we would always be that that was that was a good instigator. That spirit of competition and ego, and I want to write the the, the best songs. That didn't last for that long. So what didn't last of that? The duo or the writing? The whole thing. I mean, once high school was done, everybody went their separate ways. Uh, he went out to the University of BC. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I ended up going to Humber College for jazz piano. So you were still pursuing music? Uh, really half-heartedly, I have to say. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do at that, that period. I was 18 and um, full of angst and confusion and... Uh, general uh, the 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 general sadness I have for all of humanity was just starting to find its home in my heart probably in, in around eighteen. Did something happen to cause this? I don't or was know. It just a chemical thing. I it might just be, yeah. Might that I don't really know, but whatever the case, I was pretty aimless. And and I, you know what else? And I, I, at risk of sounding like I'm blaming anybody, I don't want to blame anybody. We're the authors of our own. Uh, fate but i had i had really hard-working noble uh well-meaning parents that did not hold any formal uh post-secondary education degrees at least not at this time they they did they were not they were not the intelligentsia they were not people that 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 were in the cultural world or, right. or, or the arts and uh and when they and 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 I came from a time, and you'll remember this time, where the authority figures in 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 society when mm -hmm. when they spoke it 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 ended with a thud. So 
we we would listen to cops, we would listen to politicians, and we would listen profoundly to the teachers at parent-teacher interviews. Those were the people my parents were. When the math teacher told my 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 dad that he should get a trade because this isn't for him, mm-hmm. he, he he on one hand he believed it wholeheartedly, on the other hand he he said to himself, "That's the last time I'm ever going to talk to a teacher." Mm-hmm. And then they moved on. So I had no, I had nothing in my life except the teacher. And I was such a rebel in high school. I mean, I was a good kid. I didn't get into any real trouble, but I, 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 I was, I was a problem to, to be in that school. Like I had all this creativity and imagination that was trying to come out and there was no, no avenues for that there. I mean, I, I belonged in what they call art schools today. And I don't even know if I do or not. Like that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. Who knows what an art school would have done to my head. Right. I mean, but I don't know if it's that unusual to be at that age and kind of trying to discover who you are or no, not at all. And, you know, not at all being confused. But um, either way, it 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 created this uh, bizarre period of um, uh, the only thing I was certain of was is that I did not like the state of things, <laughs> and <laughs> I was not a happy person. Um, I I I I wanted to, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think I remember vaguely my mom saying, "You got to find something to do. Mm-hmm. You, you can't just be here." Uh, and I that made sense to me, and so I thought, okay, well, I, I. I'll go and apply for a theater program. I don't know. It, I cringe at the idea now, but I I went there and I went through the motions and I memorized this this monologue and I went there and I did my thing and they and they said something I I guess uh, I look back upon with some gratitude. They just said flat out, "Well, we don't see the range here." Um, Sorry, but there, we do have a, a preliminary theater course if you're interested in. Of course, that just, I mean, I was at least smart enough to understand that was not, that's a plan C, that it, right. you never take a plan C. Um, so I just uh, um, made nice and shook hands and walked out. And on my way out of Humber College that day, I ran into the husband of my piano teacher. <laughs> strange fortuitous meeting and he saw me and he immediately said hey john what are you doing here are you here for the music program we need keyboard players wow yeah and i (laughs) and i said i said i i never i never look back on myself as somebody who's on the ball with words and timing i just don't feel that way but i looking back i think i was here i had the chutzpah to actually lie and just say yeah i they problem is is they told me they're full I just said I told told a lie to him in the hallway. Like I'm, I was here for music, but they said they're they're full, and he was like, you know, he kind of did the head turn and scrabble face. Why don't you come into my office for a second? And he sat down in his office. He said, "I'm going to play a bass line. You improvise on the top." And that was easy for me because I was self taught. You know, I understood how to play by ear. Of course the time and maybe still to this day a lot of jazz programs particularly with the piano students have a problem finding finding kids that can play by ear because of that mm-hmm. um, monster called the royal conservatory uh, generations of kids have been raised to play music and the minute you take away the uh the, the music sheet they're they're it's like they're illiterate all of a sudden anyway so i wasn't great but I was better than a lot in that I can improvise. And from there, and I just got in and I felt like, okay, I'm on a, I'm on a, I'm on a neat new, 
uh, path here. I can deal with this. And it was great. And for two years, I, I practiced in practice modules for hours and hours and hours. And, uh, I wasn't a great student because I didn't have the mind for it yet, but I was, but I was pretty inspired and I learned a ton there. So you felt like you belonged in a certain way. Um, uh, no, I always, I, I, to, in a certain, to a certain extent, but I always felt, I've always felt always, I guess this is just, uh, uh, I don't know. I guess this is just my, my natural state, but I've never felt like I belonged anywhere. This was no different. I always felt like I was in only because I knew the I, the, I, I understood why I was there. I was there because I could improvise, but I also understood that I can't compete with some of these dudes that are in my same level that are that that already are great, you know, guitar players that play with every fret and all that. You know, I, I just didn't. And and my mind didn't my mind wasn't ripe for learning until my late 20s. That's just the way I was built. Mm-hmm. I think a way I think that's the way a lot of people are built if they're being honest it's a strange thing sometimes I think the whole world would be better if we if we took kids after grade 12 and then just put them to work for five years and then they get to go to a university mm-hmm. you know what I mean well, no I, and some people do right I mean they spend time traveling or whatever that the after yeah. school before they pick their route or whatever so then you joined a band or were you in the band at this point I ended up in a blues band a band that played uh, uh, mainly Stevie Ray Vaughan and Albert King and well, the, all the Kings, um, but Stevie Ray Vaughan, Hendrix. Uh, what else did we play? Um, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. It, it was a rock and blues band and no direction. And the lead singer was 40 and we were 20, 20, 21, 22, 19. That was mm-hmm. the age of the players in this, this ragtag outfit. Um, but you said it was a good band. Uh, not at the not at the beginning. It it got good, but I remember this guy, and I remember looking at him as such an old dude. And now I'm like forty seven. Uh, anyway, he we basically chased him out, and I took over, and that's that's where I I I I'm, I, I do have a. a an instinct for leadership. If I'm going to be stuck in a room with five people, I got to be in charge. Right. And that's what inevitably happened. Um, and, and I, we, someone needed to sing and someone needed to write songs. So I volunteered for both. And that's when we started. Um, and, and a few members later, uh, we were a real outfit in the early nineties. Um, really unfortunate band name we called ourselves the norge union and it was a play upon this horrible insurance television commercial we just didn't know what to name ourselves and that that was indicative of a bigger problem we didn't really we weren't old enough to have a real uh purpose beyond beyond um rocking you know beyond playing like it was our last day on earth beyond that we didn't really have a, a, a you know we didn't have an edifying cause or purpose or worldview that's not unusual though maybe not but i think it's necessary if bands are to survive mm-hmm. it you know i think one that look at the bands that had the greatest longevity um they usually have some purpose some some purpose that beyond uh just the 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 uh, the need to perform music live. But if I, you know, in my in interviewing different musicians, 
I'm always surprised when people say I have a plan or I have a five-year plan. That seems to be the exception versus the norm. Well, a five-year plan... But some some kind of plan, whether it's... Yeah, I, see, I, see what, I see what you mean. I get what you mean, but... I think when I hear busy. five-year plan, I, I, I hear failed socialist idea <laughs> and run screaming from this person that has is not in touch with emotion yeah. at all. But I know what you mean. Or, or maybe just goals. Okay. You know, I think everybody's thinking, I, I mean, I think being a musician or any kind of artist is difficult because you have to make a living and just mm-hmm. keep playing. And your first priority is to find that next gig or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are some people I've interviewed who, who say in three years, I want to do this or whether there's a time frame or not. My goal is to do that. And I find that that idea is is not the common theme with a lot of musicians. It's more of I got to do this album and then hopefully I tour and down the line is probably do another album and then tour. Yeah, I don't know. I. I would understand that if it was somebody who was in, in who, who who got into music at an early age and was always in it. Mm-hmm. For me, it was a choice later in life to go back into music after not being in music. So you left music. Absolutely, what, yeah. What I, caused that? Well, I uh, um by 1995 i learned you know the the hard way uh never rent rehearsal space from heroin addicts things go missing and people disappear and um and 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 your bandmates find other gigs for $50 that right. they'd rather do than stick together and suffer and you know the, so that dissolved and necessarily so and I uh, bought a guitar to celebrate my defeat of of that endeavor. Um, I hadn't given up music yet, but I certainly wasn't interested in doing this band leader stuff for a long time. And, um, you know, Chekhov, one of my favorite writers, once once wrote that when you change women, you change destinies. And I think that's profoundly true. And right around the time when the band had its last gig, and I remember the date, February 20th at the Horseshoe, 1995, I met this girl with whom I was to have a relationship with for about four years, four and a half years. I ended up following her to Poland, uh, where she was an ESL teacher and introduced me to, to teaching ESL. And not only that, but introduced me to higher education. Um. I don't want to get into all that because it can go on forever. Um, basically, I discovered somewhere around the period I was over there in my travels, um, in my interest for uh, seeing, you know, areas of disaster and crisis, uh, I saw firsthand um, a world that I felt Southern Ontario wasn't aware of. This Remember, this is 96, 97. Um, where we had newspapers for, right. you know, our information. And I, I traveled to the, a lot of these places, former Soviet Union, former Yugoslavia, uh, the Baltic States, Northern Ireland, Belfast, all these places I got to go to with a very naive uh, desire to have all the questions answered. You know, of course, I left with more questions. <laughs> but I left with, I did leave with one valuable thing, and that was a, 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 a 
a newly discovered desire to use music as a means of um, talking about what I felt was more the, the, the essentials. What is the human beast? You know, how do we get into the soul of things about who we are? So at, at this point, you still you, you have a guitar. You're just kind yep. of learning it, mm-hmm. and and but it's not you're not performing live. You just it's you're playing for you, yourself. Exactly. I'm I am just doing my best to imitate Neil Young and Bruce Springsteen. You know, and who else could I throw in there? Van Morrison, maybe uh, John Lennon. Uh, I just wanted to figure out a way to well I I knew what I wanted to be I wanted to be a a Gen X version of of probably Springsteen I would probably say was the guy that was inspired me the most as far as standing there with just an acoustic guitar for an instrument and I don't mean the E Street Band I've never seen the E Street Band but that's okay I think people get what I'm talking about there anyway so did you was, was it a moment that you thought I'm just gonna I'm gonna pursue music again as a solo artist. I'd say it was a moment. It was a moment when I saw the Tom Jode tour, and that ties in with that whole experience going to Eastern Europe. Because I remember the first time I saw that album, I was in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, and uh, you know we uh, just the whole the whole timing of that the Tom Jode album in '95 and my travels and stuff like that. I I. I, I would cite that as the moment. And I saw him perform live solo. And that was the most moving thing I'd ever seen musically. And that, and, and that, you know, I'd seen a lot. Of, I mean, I pri- we prided ourselves growing up that we, we've saw every concert mm-hmm. of import. I mean, everything. And, and that one was one of those moments where I just saw one man on stage with an acoustic guitar. Problem was, is that it took me um, very little time to understand that, I I had no language for this. I knew what I wanted to do, but I had no. I need I, I need to read a book now. Mm-hmm. I, I can't I can't just rely on um, whatever you know whatever I learned at Humber College on about jazz piano. I not and now I not only had to find my own voice on the, the instrument on a new instrument, but I also had to have a have something to say. Right. You can't do that by just putting your head down and. No, yeah, I needed an edu- I needed an education, a formal education. So I I pursued that for about eight years, which was well started off with politics at York University, political science. Uh, I quickly learned that that wasn't going to do it. Uh, switched over to music, more like musicology. Mm-hmm. I've. And then I was interested in architecture. I did some of that, but then I, I, I eventually discovered in night. Uh, I guess it was ninety nine. I, I I took a course with Barry Callahan uh, on criticism, English criticism, and it was then that I I knew that okay, English is going to do it for me. This is what I want to. This is where I need to be. So all of this, all these different routes you've taken, mm-hmm. had the goal of become, yes. one day becoming a songwriter. Yes. So there's your five-year plan. <laughs> I guess I guess you're right, but here's what happened. What happened was <laughs> I aborted the whole thing after two years of of this of this new of this new path of 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 academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I discovered I was such a good student, straight A's, summa cum laude. I mean, I was 
getting scholarships. I was winning academic awards in a university. Did you feel like you belonged at that point? Was Never. That, no. I always, I always felt like I lucked out with the greatest professors who, who gave me enough rope to, to write and think in, imaginatively as opposed to, you know, what the system wanted. Uh, I had a couple teachers that didn't, didn't matter. The majority were, were, were let me, let me go. So you go through this path of mm -hmm. different courses and training, and then you're still thinking at one point that you are going to be a songwriter. Mm -hmm. And then you've managed to become a songwriter and you've been recognized a number of times, nominated for songwriter of the years by the various parties. And how does that, how does one go to school and then become a decent songwriter? How painful was that thing or did it come not naturally, but was it easy for you to become somebody who wrote decent songs or wrote songs that people recognized? Well, first of all, a bit of context. When I went back to school, 98, 99, 2000, this is all before 9-11. Mm -hmm. And it was also the point at which popular music, uh, that, that brief... Uh, breath of fresh rebellious spirited uh air that grunge gave us was was all but you know eliminated and it was boy bands it was the worst it was arguably the worst period of music we we've had to endure the late 90s there was what i would call college campus teen rock and there was boy bands right nightmare music had become a cartoon and and I looked around uh, and I really tried not to be negative. It wasn't born of some, you know, late 20s, early 30s, uh, nihilistic, ho hopeless view of the world. It wasn't anything like that. But I really felt like this is not a this is not this is no longer an art form where serious art or, or purpose or moral purpose can flourish. We just, it's no longer a platform for this. That's what I felt. I, I, I had, I, I would even, I would even, th this idea, I was overwhelmed with this idea. I mean, it came up in everything I read or, or wrote about it. I, I, I would, I would, I would, anyway, I don't even know how to speak, but the point that you'd think with an education, I could put a sentence together, but it doesn't work that way, kids. <laughs> you just you, the older you get, the less handle you have on the language, another, and the more things you forget. Yes, but that's true. Point, but at one point or another, you decided I'm going to write song. Can I? Can I just? I'll, I'm going to skip to that point. Okay. And it's a funny story, and the people who were involved in the story probably won't even remember that they were involved in it. But my hero, my mentor, the guy who, if I had to cite one person that influenced me the most in what I do, what I dedicate my life to would be uh, that Torontonian Barry Callahan. And he inspired me how to think, how to, how to question. And he just pointed me in the right corners of the library. And we just seemed to be at our, our souls were just sort of attuned to each other. That's, that doesn't sound very good, but our, 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 we were attuned to each other's point of view kind of, um, right. 
our tastes were similar. I remember taking his course, The Literature of Crisis. I mean, that's where Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, I discovered. Um, anyway, the list goes on of great books. But the point is, he, he took a shine to me because he recognized in me a, 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 an original uh, voice in writing. Uh, a, a someone in their 20, late 20s still hungry for learning. Um, I was clearly in an inspired period in my life. And, um, so I would, I, I, I was sort of following his lead and doing really well in, in academia and thinking I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a writer. This is, uh, this is, this is the series. This is the world that has embraced me. This is the world from here on. I will, I will aim to be part of. And I, and I stayed on that course and I got to know Barry well enough that he'd occasionally invite me over or invite me out or something. You know, one time he wanted to teach me how to do off-track horse betting. And now it, I cringe at the thought now because I just think such things are barbaric cruelty to animals. But that, those thoughts weren't in my head when my literary hero invites me out to go to, um, right. um, what was that place called down on Church Street? Just closed not too long ago. Anyway... We went there, and he didn't tell me th this, but another one of my favorite writers, he was friends with, Austin Clark, uh, and uh, he showed up. And it, and I'm looking at these two guys who, who, for my money, are the greatest writers in Canada today, Barry Clark and Austin, uh, Barry Clark, Barry Callahan and Austin Clark, and I'm sitting there with them drinking like uh, South African uh, Merlot. And learning this archaic sport of betting on horses and just feeling like I'd arrived in some way that some, that I can't believe I'm, I'm here, you know, breathing the same air. Mm -hmm. Barry got up to go to the washroom at one point later in the evening. And I remember Austin leaning across the table and, and saying with that, you know, that, you know, yeah, picture Austin Clark at the time. He was like, God, he probably was 70 years old, big dreads. He was from the islands, you know, and uh, and he said, he leaned over. I can't do his accent, but he said, hey, Bar Barry tells me that you at one point were a songwriter. Is that true? And I, you know, of course, some red wine in, I, I felt, you know, confident <laughs> enough to say, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I can write a song. And he said something to the effect of, uh, so you can arrest the soul of a man and and his the essence of his life and within three or four or five minutes mix that with melody and other musical voodoo you can do that and I and I and I said I think on a good day I can do that I'd be your man for that <laughs> and then he said he said what the fuck are you doing hanging out with a couple old grizzled writers trying to write a 400 page novel? If you can do that, he didn't actually say this part, but basically I discovered that if there is such a sin, if there is such a thing as a sin in this world, it's not doing what you know you can do really, really well. Now, when, you know, I had family and friends who, had been bothering me on and off. Why aren't you playing music anymore? You know, and I never took it seriously. But when these two guys who I idolized looked at me and, 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 and thought that and told me that, I think it was probably, if not the next day within that week, I was, I picked up a Taylor guitar that was dusty and so out of tune. And 
and I, I started playing it. Hmm. So that would be like 2003. And my first album came out in 2005, late 2005. I say on the website 2006 because it was really late 2005 it came out. And how, how difficult was that process to get that album out, to write those songs and to, to reveal this songwriting thing that you do? Well, the first album and like the first, I'm like, I'm sure it's not, uh, not, not that different from the first, from someone's first novel or someone's first art exhibit. It's, it's excruciatingly painful and it takes way longer than any album that follows that usually. Um, and it was really hard to just feign the confidence throughout the whole experience the record like learning how to sing behind a mic in a recording studio i mean that was a big job uh never mind actually learning how to write 12 or 13 songs for the album i mean i still look fondly back on that album it was called no means city and and i think it's still a great album but it is clearly the work of somebody who had not yet played in front of a lot of audiences it's interesting though. So a lot of bands play for, and I, a lot of musicians spend years accumulating enough material for the first album or getting the best stuff. But in your case, I mean, you really started rewriting or writing your songs not that f- soon before you actually put out your first album. It wasn't like you had a collection of music that you've been carrying around with you for fifteen years. No, I had a, I had a, you're right. I had a couple, there was a couple anomalies. I mean, there was a couple songs that I had written. Um, you know, when I was living in Eastern Europe, I was writing songs cause I was certain I was going to just jump right into this career mm-hmm. and those weren't so bad. And some of them, some of them were good enough to make the cut on my first and second album. No second album doesn't have any of those. They're all, they're all new, but my first album has a couple songs on it. My third album has one song on it that I wrote in 1994. <laughs> but, but, so, but, it, but to the generally, you're right. For the most part, I was coming at this with a clean slate. So you had experience playing, performing live with bands. Mm-hmm. You, you know how to play your instrument, but you're kind of relearning the guitar and trying to become a guitar player yeah. as well as a front person or yeah. a singer as well as write. It's a painful, painfully long apprenticeship. I don't think there's any art form that has a longer apprenticeship than the singer songwriter it's there's so many things going on you got to be equal parts you know writer performer musician stand-up comic teacher prophet uh technician businessman accountant publicist you have to write an email properly. I mean, there's so many things. It never ends. Right. And all the while, you have to always know who the sucker in the room is. Because if you don't, you're the sucker. And that takes a long time, too. I've been burned. Not Thankfully, not as much as other people I know. But explain the concept of that after the first album, thinking, I need to be playing more live. Oh, okay, sure. Um, there was no way around this, of course, and this is part of that, what I mean by apprenticeship. Like there's, this is just something you learn by playing, by performing. What it doesn't take, it it won't take a musicologist's mind to, 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 to come to the conclusion that if you line up 
my first three or four, maybe even the last album, if you line them up and listen to them, um, you can you can discern a simplification going on. Not not a not a not a dumbing down by any stretch, but a more but a but a, but what I've learned over time is how to say something that resonates in time. And by in time I mean when you when you stand in front of a painting, the painting's the same as it was the last time you stood in front of it two years ago. It's always gonna stay there. You can you can go to the gift shop and get a print of that painting and take it home and stare at it even longer. But a song is an art form that op- operates in time. And it's not a poem. You know, a poem you have in a book and you can stare at it and reread it and take it in and you can you can speak it out loud, you can internalize it, you can approach it at different periods of your life and get to, you know, but a song flies by and if it doesn't cut through and reach people in that in that in that moment in time, it's useless. It's useless. I mean, and there are some there are some there are some artists, some songwriters, uh, not of my generation, older that have benefited from a record industry that has pushed their song. You know, Leonard Cohen could not be Leonard Cohen today. Mm-hmm. There's no chance. I imagine he'd be the first to admit it. But there's no way in hell you're going to hear the the Leonard Cohen song "The Future" one time on 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 college radio and take it in. It's not going to happen. You need he he benefited from that industry push that had that the, the video on twenty four seven, and it got into our psyche. You know, you tell an intelligent person one thing once, and it doesn't mean anything. You tell an intelligent person the same thing twice, they might nod their head. Yeah, that's true. You tell an intelligent person something, the same thing four, five, six, seven, eight times. They're not going to act on it once. You have to have the chance to tell an intelligent person. Not the intelligent person needs to hear it nine times. This is my science, by the way. It's not proven, but I really believe that it takes nine times for that for that knock to go on the door to to come on the door of even the most intelligent, uh, sophisticated mind before they go. Okay, I'm going to give this a listen. This is for real. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now here in. I've totally derailed the conversation to bring it into this whole new, new, weird, wild west that we're in now, where everything's independent. Um, and I guess this is this is one of the drawbacks to this particular, this this character of this age we're in now. We no longer have the the push of songs. Like we were listening. I remember when I walked into the room, we had Joni Mitchell playing. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Court and Spark was just played? you know, a couple times here and there on college radio. If it came out, they had a publicist send out 500 copies to the folk DJ list, you know, and that was it. Right. It, it would, this is dense. Her, her, her songs in that period were so dense, uh, deep, uh, uh, deeply layered, um, melodically challenging. Uh, the arrangements were curveballs. Uh, th- this required attentive an attentiveness that is just no longer available to us. All this is to say that my first album was an album built by a Gen X guy who was of that time, and it didn't stand a chance at cutting through on its own. There's no way. I mean, I I listen to it today, and and I and I and I and I 
you know, I, I, I imagine, I hope people are kind and they, they, they excuse some of the production challenges that come with first albums, you know, but, but that aside, the songs that are on there still stand up and mm-hmm. I still would stand by them except for the fact that in the, in the world that I operate in, where every gig I play, half the room doesn't, has never seen me before. These songs don't work. They will not work. So how do you approach, I mean, I've seen you live. I've heard your album, albums. Um, what does the album mean to you? Is it just a way in which to get live gigs? Is it a way to get the song out there? Like, well, how do you view your album versus your live performance? Well, I, for me, the album is a way of, of yes, getting gigs of definitely of getting some airplay. Everybody plays what's new now. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems I'm always equal parts surprised and saddened by, by, um, a volunteer industry of folk DJs that, for the most part, play what's dated 2015, 2014, maybe 2013. It's so rare, mm-hmm. unless you're you're really well known in 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 our circles, to have a DJ dare go back six years and find something off of you know what I mean? Like, yeah. just doesn't that that mindset doesn't seem to hap, uh, happen? There's so many albums being released every week. It's it's obscene. Mm-hmm. Um. But my approach to the album is I actually use it I, I actually look at it as as a as a as a means of keeping f- a focus on my live presentation that's that's what a lot of times there's a theme if it's if it's if it's not an obvious overt theme like murder ballads or war stories it's there's some kind of a theme linking the songs together mm-hmm. and that helps me put on a coherent live show, which I think is important because that's really what we have to offer at the end of the day. I mean, albums are have never been. I mean, the Beatles and Pink Floyd basically perfected the album, and it never got better than that as an art form. I mean, um, whatever we can do in a recording studio is a, is a distant second to what a live performance is. You know, it's never, it's never, a, it's never a. a an accurate example of, of anybody. Um, so yeah, it is, it is an excuse to play live to some degree, but it also helps shape the live performance, I think. But when we first met you, you were talking about gun dealer and getting some traction Mm -hmm. in the States. Mm -hmm. I presume it's still getting played down Mm -hmm. there. So at that point, it's about the song and it's the song that's out there. And then I presume you're getting some gigs based on that song and you're playing in the States. Yeah here and there and you're going to Australia and you're going mm-hmm. to different places. Is that not because of the album or because of your music? Well, I, yeah, I would say short answer is yes, totally. Uh, I know, I mean, I know, I know, I know it's, it's sort of an antiquated idea to think in terms of albums. Mm-hmm. And I agree. And I understand that, but I find it helpful to think that way. Otherwise, I don't know where my mind would go. It, it would go in all kinds of strange directions. It, the, to have a to have a themed album, I mean, and 
And it pains me to think of the number of albums released. I wish people would pull it back a little bit. We really don't need an album out every year. In fact, we don't need an album from you every two years. But it, I also think you put in a lot of work into your albums. I don't think you just write songs and it's done in three weeks. I think you put no, months we, and I, months of work into every song you write. Yes, I do. Because I, and I think it's because of my age going into this. I was 37 when I made up my mind to be a, a singer, songwriter, performer. And I, and at age 37, you, you have, you have learned a little bit of shame and you have, I, I think more so than a 27 year old, definitely more than a 17 year old. You understand that if you're going to ask people's attention in a, in a, in an age where everybody just like Warhol uh, predicted, everybody has a mic in front of them in some form or not, you know, I feel it's, I'm obliged to, 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 to sing some, to, to say and sing things that have some kind of special import and relevance and meaning, uh, on, uh, you know, of our time here and now. That's why I take my time with these things. I mean, there used to be an urgency for me to get these things out because I was nobody. I just started out and I had no albums. So yeah, my first three albums were sort of, I really needed them, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but you got nice recognition on those albums and you still continue I, to, I suppose I did. I don't even know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I have no, I don't have a concrete sense of, of, of my worth. You know, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not even sure it matters anymore. Um, I'm starting to grow. I'm starting to, to get used to the idea of being known for being unknown. <laughs> like, I heard a stand-up comic make a joke. Not, I don't know. Recently, it was, it, but it summed up my feeling. You know, I, th- I felt like, I feel like sometimes, the government of Canada wastes a lot of unnecessary monies on on witness protection program, mm-hmm. um, putting people who have the courage to to stand on on in the on the witness stand and 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 fight organized crime. But of course, they have to get new identities and new homes. Uh, driving beer trucks in Milwaukee after, but I had the idea or from seeing this comic, he had the idea that why don't we, why don't we just give them guitars and a website? (laughs) You know, that'll work better than, than any expensive, you know, witness protection program. Just give them, give them johnbrooks.ca record label with Borealis. There you go. And then there's your ticket to, Con, uh, absolute and confirmed obscurity forever. When are you at your happiest? Is it on stage? Is it in the studio? Is it in the library working on a new song? Mm. I suppose it's um. I suppose it's on stage when it's when I when I like the audience. When I when I feel that I've got when I'm playing in front of the right people, that's that's the happiest I get. Um, I'm still, it's still taking forever to find that right audience. Um, but you're playing a lot of different places. How yeah. does that happen? How do you get gigs in Australia? How do you get gigs in Alabama? And- yeah, that's wild. I'm gonna play in Alabama, Alabama in March. Yeah, sing my songs about war resistors there. Let's see how that goes over. <laughs> And gun dealers. Gun dealer, yeah. Um, well, one thing I've learned through music is, is that wherever there's a wherever there's a, a conservative um, 
government or 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 a community uh, a strong conservative influence there's always a win below um, Texas is one of the great examples of that you you, you know if you if you were to list a hundred of the greatest songwriters in the last hundred years, easily, easily fifty of them come from Texas, and that might shock a lot of Canadians, particularly Canadians who have this kind of un, definitely an unfair understanding of of what a Texan is. It's split right down the middle between blue and red down there. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing in Alabama. There's going to be a wind below. I play Florida now every year, and, and I never thought I would. I always thought Florida was the place to blame for everything. But there's, a, there's, a, there's, an, there's, a, there's another side to Florida that's really hungry for the opposite. Like Sarasota is a place that has more in common with 70s San Francisco, I think, than anything we associate with Florida, you know? That's anyway, um, what was your question? <laughs> it was something how are you unrelated. getting out there like how is how do you, i do yeah, it yeah like how are you um you're getting gigs in alabama and well i'm i'm not i i i had i started off with with agents i think i mentioned earlier uh getting being the you know, always making sure that you're aware of the sucker in the room mm-hmm. you know back when i wasn't so aware of the sucker in the room i i put a lot of time and money into agents and managers and publicists not a lot, not a, not a, not a, not a sinkable amount. I mean, I survived it, so it couldn't have been that much money lost, but nonetheless, I made some mistakes thinking erroneously that somebody else in this world is going to wake up thinking about John Brooks. It's just not going to, that's just not, it's not the way it works. And as much as I would love to have someone help me with the tedious administrative side of things, um, I don't, I, I don't believe anybody's going to do it better than me. I also, of, of, I, I am of the mind, just most recently discovered this uh, through having taken it over um, in the last year. I, I do believe now that there is a, uh, an appreciation, if not an actual uh, yearning on the behalf of many gatekeepers for more artists to be candid and to send their own emails out pitch mm-hmm. themselves and just say straight up I want to play your festival I want to play your festival like a man who understands that he's going to take a bullet to the head five minutes after his last song I want to do that I want to do that at your festival here's a link to my video my last question for those who don't know who you are and what you do how would you explain your music and who you are I hate to rely on pre-written phrases here but to answer your question the best answer is what 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 I've what I've managed to put on my posters and that is I I am here to calm those souls that have looked into their hearts and seen what's there and equally I'm here to terrify those of us who have not yet done that that's what I want to do that's great thank you very much for doing this Thank you for having me, Marco. Great.